Welcome again to the Southwest Climate Podcast, Mike Crimmins. Hey, Zach. Stretching that intro out. That's good. I like yeah, that. I've been practicing. How you doing? <laughs> good. It's real good. The, the vocal uh, coaching is going well. That's the best part of my contribution to these. You know, it's that, it's that intro, and then it's just softballs for you. And <laughs> So this is a November issue middle middle november we're we're heading up into the frenetic holiday season i don't know about you but boy like it just goes into like fast mode it's highly variable right like you know the work is like super fast paced the week before thanksgiving and then it like slows to a near stop which is nice and then the interim between you know before christmas is like super frenetic and then it slows down again i don't know it's it's, it's- bewildering. I try to ease into the, the Thanksgiving holiday by trying not to work too hard in Monday. Tuesday, <laughs> for, for, for the prior six months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's too hard on your body to like, you know, you have like a nice, stop. like six month <laughs> ramp up to it's basically all in service to my 17 year glide path towards retirement. So <laughs> I'm trying that out right now. Ah, uh, the tenured professor. <laughs> I know. Isn't it terrible? <laughs> now nah, you work harder than anybody I know. Uh, no, that's <laughs> not true. Uh, well, excited uh, to be back. Sort of the overview here is spent a little bit of time recapping the last month and month and a half, beginning of October, really, where when you know, sort of we we think about the the cool season beginning, and then um, talk a little bit about you know winter hazards, the hazard rapport. We'll bring that back. Are we doing uh, it in French? I mean, is that <laughs> was that part of the the hazard rapport? <laughs> the hazard rapport. Still a Colbert fan. And then end it with some, you know, outlooks and 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 talk about uh, and so and whatnot. Sounds pretty standard. Yeah, pretty standard. You know, we got a formula here. Yep. How much we 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 stick to it. But before that, here's maybe a curveball. Um, we're in our own transition season, and I got to be honest, I feel a little lonely. And you know, just looking at you in the I know. in the Zoom, um, you see the fear in both of our eyes as we as we look at each other. <laughs> you know, if we were doing this with a with a video, it'd be like. Uh, there'd be a lot of sweat pouring off. So anyway, the, 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 what we're talking about is, uh, you know, our producer, our longtime colleague, uh, Ben McMahon is, uh, has transitioned out of, you know, the university of Arizona and onto bigger and better things, uh, working in on climate services in California. Uh, he has, uh, agreed to help us along the way. Uh, and, and obviously we're, we'll, open, you know, have open arms for as long as he wants to help us out to edit this. And, but man, Mike, he really brought a level of professionalism and more than anything, confidence to this. I know. Do you, do you remember the days when we first started this and we were using the reel to reel tape recorder and, uh, Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I forgot about that. Yeah. Those were, I mean, we've been doing this for, for over 10 years now. So, uh, and I do, I also remember those early days, like having no clue how to do the editing and like the technical side of things. And we didn't edit it. <laughs> it was you know, so- I do think it, there is an archive of that. Like I am scared to go back and listen to uh, it. But, I, but but the point was, I think as, as soon as Ben got here, he, he like he figured out how to make this useful, uh, not only useful, but like functional and good sounding and you know, consequently, like it's made, you know, I think it's, it's been a pretty good product. So well, very sad to, to see him go. Yeah, I know. He made us sound intelligent. <clears throat> so if there is now a sort of a, a decrease in intelligibility with the podcast, you're starting to see the true Mike and Zach show. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully we won't just have to like dump it online unedited. <laughs> <laughs> no. So anyways, um, ben, ben is still, the point is Ben is still helping us out graciously, but at some point he won't be able to do that because he's going to be too busy. So it yeah, might start to sound like basement recordings again. And we're going to try to get Ben on and have him talk about what he's doing in California related to climate services. Cause it's actually really exciting. And, you know, Mike, you and I, and, you know, Ben for the last seven years and other people, like we sort of engage in, 
in that world, but sort of more from an experimental side of things. And, yeah. and the, the, the downside of that can be, you know, it's, it's, it's largely in service of, you know, lessons learned and, and, and knowledge, but it's much harder to actually sustain it. It's, it's actually quite amazing that we've been able to sustain this for, for 10 years, but the point has been, you know, actually now gets to actually operationalize things and, and have, have, have that be, you know, really part of the decision-making process, get climate and weather information streamlined into the decision-making process. So I'm, I'm excited about, uh, the prospect of having a conversation with Ben to hear a little bit more about what he's doing. Yeah, he's got a real job. Um, so that'll be fun to, <laughs> fun to hear about. Real job with real work. And yeah, he's going to make real impact with uh, with his program. <clears throat> okay, so with that, let's let's talk a little bit about, so we're mid, mid-November. Had to think about that for a minute. Mid-November, we let's cover uh, October up until the present, and then we can move on, talk about the hazard report. But but Mike, in my, in my version of the last month and a half, there's been sort of two seasons. First, October was the first part of October. Let's say the first two to three weeks of October was actually felt like an extension of the monsoon. And I'm curious to know your take on this. And then since then, it has been, for the most part, dry in the southern half of Arizona, with with a little bit more moisture in the, in the northern half. So, might have like the monsoon seems like it left late. I, I dug back at the precipitation ranks for, you know, statewide precipitation ranks, and you know, October in Arizona was, uh, you know, the 96th wettest out of, you know, the period of record is 128, so top third, top 25 percentile, pretty wet. And it was even wetter in, in New Mexico. So 112th out of 128, 16th wet, something like that. So yeah, October was wet. So what's your take on what the heck happened at the end of beginning of October? Yeah, so we we had our um we recorded our last podcast October 4th. So that was when we did the monsoon recap. And I I called the monsoon off the beginning of September. I said it was did. over. I did. I called it. Yeah, and- you were you we called you the punks punks. Something. Oh, that's right. I did peek my head out, and I, I think I did see my shadow, or I didn't see my shadow. I did. I saw it, or didn't see it. Whichever way it, it, it broke at that point. <laughs> September didn't quit. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't gangbusters through the rest of September. We already kind of talked about this, but what I did not see coming was by the end of September, it kind of looked like the, the, the typical monsoon ridge was retreating the south. We were actually starting to get those early season transition events, those troughs, those cold fronts coming across California. But by October 1st, we just went right back into <laughs> we went right back into early September weather. And we had a really strong ridge of high pressure build across the West, which actually led to a heat wave across the Pacific Northwest. And interestingly, as it it's a little counterintuitive, but that broad ridge actually caused it to cool down and become wet across, especially the southern parts of Arizona, New Mexico. And it actually extended across the rest of the state. But for about the first week or so, under that broad ridge, we actually had a couple of upper level lows that wandered around. Some actually moved from east to west. And in doing so, the position of that low was able to draw up moisture that was, you know, there's still some monsoon moisture that hanging out just south of here in Mexico and was able to drop back up into the the southwest and cause some pretty heavy rain across Arizona and New Mexico for the first 10 days or so of the month. And that kind of lingered right through the middle of the month. We were in this, again, waiting for the transition to happen. Ridge is still really strong across the west. Another upper level low forms right around the 15th. And then this one actually did start to move our sort of more traditional de- direction that we would expect from west to east, real slowly wandering, but again, was able to draw up quite a bit of moisture and, and produce some heavy rain, especially across Arizona around 15th, 16th, and the 17th of the month. Again, in your mind's eye, that pattern with that strong ridge across the west and this upper level low underneath it is actually called a Rex block. And that's a, a pattern where you don't have much movement of either. They actually, the low and the high reinforce each other. So we ended up having that pattern for a couple of days. So I'm talking about the 15th, 16th, 17th, 
in the 18th of October, it starts to break down a little bit. The high starts to settle. And all of a sudden, we see a pretty strong transition into a fall pattern by the 21st of the month. And then we have a really strong uh, low pressure system come out of the Pacific Northwest and cover much of the Western U.S. with uh, snow. Actually, some of that early season snow occurring across the Northern Rockies. And I just saw here, too, I didn't remember this, Zach, but it actually snowed in Albuquerque on the 24th of October with this winter storm coming across. So we went right from this kind of monsoony ac action in the beginning of, the, of October, which is unusual for it to kind of hang into October, to a pretty strong winter storm across the Western U.S. on the 23rd and 24th of the month. So then if we were thinking about the cutoff between the, when the monsoon ended, like we would probably look, if you're looking at the weather patterns, we would probably say sometime around like the 20th, 21st of, of October. Yeah, I guess I, it's, it's this whole thing of, is it the same kind of ridge that you get in the middle of the summer in the deep easterly flow? Or is this more some kind of artificial pattern that could emerge in October that's looks like the monsoon, but really isn't the monsoon. I kind of lean towards the latter. But okay, so so maybe a, a partial answer to that is, was this really unusual? Because, you know, as long as I've been paying attention, like I had never seen in October where I was like, wow, that looks like, you know, a monsoon storm, a convective storm. I mean, it looked very, very monsoony, you know, just visually, right? And, you know, I haven't, I hadn't experienced that late into the into the fall. So how uncommon is and and so the reason that this is a partial explanation is yeah, cuz weather happens, right? Yeah. Like, yep, yep. So so how uncommon is it? I I can't remember an October quite like this. And so it's it's not to say that you can have a wet October, but typically it's tropical storms that will wander up through sort of a transition pattern, right? So that trough dragging in and steering the storms over the Southwest. And just to be clear with the transition pattern, like uh -huh. we're basically talking about traje the trajectory of the, the, uh, the jet stream. Yeah. So the transition is, there's a transition into the monsoon and then there's a transition out. And that transition is the subtropical high starts to build North across the uh, continental U.S., and it's largely due to increasing sun angle and surface heating, right? And retract of the polar jet to the north. So there's, there's a whole hemispheric sort of reorganization of the synoptic flow pattern, right? And so with that heating of the continent, you have the, this, the westerlies and a, um, sometimes a trough off the west coast get replaced by this mid-level ridge, right? Mm -hmm. So in that transition, though, there is wind out of the west, the southwest and the west in May and June. And that is dry at that time of the year because that fetch doesn't have much moisture with it, if any moisture with it. So that's dry, but it can still be windy out of that. And then the ridge builds to the north by late June and into July. And then if the high pressure system's in the right spot, which has been the last couple summers, the southern part of the southwest, southern Arizona, New Mexico are under easterly flow and and Mexico is too, sort of deep easterly flow on the south side of that high, right? That's classic monsoon seasonality right there. So that reverses, it sinks back to the south through September as the sun angle decreases and the, the continent cools off and we start to get um, more vigorous synoptic activity in the whole Northern hemisphere. So we, tra so we transition out, right? So the that ridge is replaced by you know, uh, troughs moving across the West. So we had that in the end of September. And then, and then all of a sudden we had a, a pretty pronounced wave pattern in the jet that created that ridge to come back across the West. So it's not, it's not quite the same, you know, as the climatological progression of the monsoon, this was more Northern hemisphere weather scale change in the jet stream that gave us the ridge to come back. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you are leaning toward it just looking like the monsoon. And there's other causes, like there's other drivers yeah. of, of that yeah. ridge that 
then looked a lot like, you know, the monsoon pattern, but it was just yeah. caused by a different set of circumstances. Right. Cause, cause monsoon it points to a seasonal uh, reversal in the wind. Right. So that's, that's not what this was. <laughs> so, but one question though, about that, let's say, let's say those same sort of regional conditions happen with, with uh, the highs and lows in, in the jet that created a, a high pressure, but a high pressure ridge, but that it happened, let's say a week to 10 days later. Would okay. we still have, A, would that have been possible? Seems like it would have been. Yeah. And, and and B, would that have led to the same amount of aerial extent of, of rainfall? Yeah, that's a really good question. It it might not have, right? So the the climatology and that seasonality of moisture to the south also retreats. And so like you, I think what you're saying here, Zach, is that the t- timing is good, right? Because right at the tail end of the monsoon, if there is moisture hanging around, anything you can do to bring it up here, and it, it's still a, it's still a fairly warm time of the year. So the, the ability of the atmosphere to hold on to higher dew points or higher precipitable water is, is great. As the whole Northern Hemisphere cools off, we lose a lot of that precipitable water ability or the to have high precipitable water. It sinks back south to the tropics as well. So if it were maybe a couple of weeks later and you already started to see subtropical moisture retreat to the south, we could have just had a ridge of high pressure that created hot weather across even Arizona and uh, New Mexico. And or or it could, we could even had a... a cut off low wander south of here. And it may have just been wind, maybe some high clouds, maybe not the precipitation. Yeah, exactly. And it's also the case that that ridge could have happened in the past, you know, even earlier, late September, but the moisture in that particular season would have already sort of, you know, left the region. And so it didn't actually generate like late September, early October rainfall. So, yeah, I mean, it is, it does seem like it's a confluence of uh, a number of conditions that uh, allow for that that rainfall to generate, but then, but then I go, one could easily make the, the, the point that isn't that always the case for the monsoon? Like, it's not like there doesn't need to be triggers for the monsoon, you know, rainfall, you know, within the monsoon season proper. It's a, fine line between trying to define, I guess, the end of the, you know, the, the exact cutoff of the, the monsoon season, but maybe the point, you know, the worth retaining is that, yeah, there was moisture around, it was present, like, and, you know, we had this late season mm-hmm. event that was forced by perhaps like non-monsoonal characteristic forcings that, yeah. uh, that led to, you know, pretty pronounced like two week period of, of rainfall. I'm looking at these maps and it's like, you know, from October 2nd to October 11th, there's, there's rain in, you know, 50% of the Arizona, New Mexico, Yeah. Uh, you know, and then there's like a, a break, you know, on 12th, 13th and 14th and 15th of, of October where it's, uh, you know, clear, probably clear blue skies. And and then, as you mentioned before, the 16th, 17th, and 18th, there was another event that came through another, uh, wandering low, um, that really actually generated quite a bit of, I don't remember this, but it looks like there was quite a bit of rainfall uh, around much of the Southwest. Yeah. Yep. yep. And then, yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe we leave behind the sort of residuals of the monsoon at that point and are now sort of more into the transitional, seasonal, typical westerly uh, influence, uh, westerly wind influence uh, from then on. The subtropical moisture, you know, that's a hallmark of the transition in the monsoon season, right? Is that that building of the ridge starts to drag in the easterlies related to the subtropics and tropics get a lot closer to Arizona, right? As you get into to June and July and through the monsoon season. So there's, it's much more proximal and so easy to work with. And as we get out of the season, we get into the fall, we lose access to that. And so when we're talking about subtropical moisture to get it into the region, it's now subtropical. We're talking all the way back 
to the subtropics like south of uh, Hawaii, you know, mm -hmm. so then it's a long, it's those long fetches of getting subtropical moisture in across the Pacific related to the westerlies and the subtropical jet stream. So it, it really transitions. So I think, we, you know, what you're saying here too, is that you got this moment at the end of the season where it's still close enough and you can actually work with it, but it, it wanes pretty quickly and we're already, you know, out of it, you know, by this point as we're into November. And so now we've, we've got to look kind of elsewhere to really drag that stuff up here. So then, so thinking about like mid-October to uh, mid to end October to where we are now, mid-November, mid, mid like for the most part in, in the Southern part of uh, the Southwest, it has been dry. Like Tucson, I believe it has not, um, has not rained. Nope. Uh, it's been a little bit in Phoenix, but that's actually not the case as you go further North, like Flagstaff, yeah has had a couple, a number of events actually uh, of rainfall and it's, and then the four corners region as well, right at the four corners, you know, has also experienced a couple rainfall events in, in, in November. So, but that's split, right, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong. So my mental model of like what a typical sort of transition or even like early part of the cool season looks like is that it, it's just, it's not uncommon to have Rain, more rain in the northern half of the southwest than it is in the southern half, just because the storms themselves are not track. They're not tracking as far as as far south as. How do I say this? It's just less frequent that a, a storm would track further south than it is for a storm to um, track further north. So there's more opportunity for. Uh, rainfall in the in, in the northern half is that is that more or less the the correct mental model? Yeah, totally. And it's it's also you know if you think about the kind of common definitions of the desert ecosystems across the southwest. So like the Mojave Desert is a part of the California Mediterranean climate, which is winter dominated. The Chihuahuan Desert is actually summer dominated and has a very weak winter signal, right? So that and we have both of those deserts in Arizona from North to South and the Sonoran is the mix of the two. So yeah, what you're alluding to is that by the time we get into fall, we, we can and do in good years often see the precipitation start in the Northern part of the state and hopefully extend South as we get deeper into the winter. So the, the better chances for Southern Arizona and Southern New Mexico to get into winter precip happens later than it does the Northern parts of the state. And we've already, mm -hmm. like you said, we already saw that. So we've seen Flagstaff actually have a couple of snow events where they were just wind for the southern parts of the state. So the, to me, that begs a question. In my mind, there's there's like three different characteristic storms that the Southwest can get. There's a, a wet and cold version. There's a wet and dry version. There's a cold and dry version. And I'm leaving out the warm and dry because did you say the, the second one was wet and dry? I did say that. Okay, uh, but I didn't mean to say that. Okay, because <laughs> I was I was already trying to trying to grok that one and figure that one. Out. <laughs> that was uh, thank you for correcting me. No, that, that's uh, that's seeing how much you're paying attention and, and hey, how, how fast your brain works. All right, let me say that again. Okay, so there's a wet and cold. There's a wet and warm. Okay. Yep. There is a dry and cold. Yeah. Good. Good. And I'm leaving off the um, warm and dry. Okay. Yep. Because that to me, a warm and dry for a winter storm seems. It's a little unlikely. weird. Yeah. Is, it, it, is that correct though? Yeah. I, yeah. So do you want to step through these? Let's, yeah, step, let's leave, step we'll leave that as a weird contingency that maybe we could reason out. I'm not sure. All right. So the question is, is like, I'm just curious, like what the regional pattern would, would be to create these different scenarios. So we can step through them. So let's take the wet and cold version first. Okay. So wet, wet and cold. So, so let's think about wet, wet and cold and dry and cold together because they're they're really pretty similar. Okay, so wet and cold storms are they're great storms that um 
can bring quite a bit of snow to uh, Arizona. And those are also the storms that we can think about in the last couple of years that have happened. They usually happen somewhere in the sometimes December, more kind of January, February, sort of the heart of winter. And they're this, those are the storms that actually can bring snow down to the valley floors across Arizona and New Mexico, right? So the, those have low snow levels. Those are typically um, storms that have inland tracks. So they're they're forming over the Gulf of Alaska and then progressing down the West Coast and have an interior track, which actually makes them cold, right? So then if you can imagine that they're, they're part of a polar air mass that's coming out of the North. And they also have to have enough moisture with them that the moisture can make it all the way this far south. So they've, so it's gotta be a, a, a pretty specific- Juicy. Yeah, it's gotta be juicy. So it's, it's gotta have, it's gotta pick up some moisture somewhere out of the Gulf of Alaska. And then it's gotta be able to sustain it all the way to the south. Which and, is always remarkable to me because when you yeah. look at the West, right? It, like it's got to traverse a, thread the needle between a bunch of different mountain ranges, right? Yeah. And, and that, that inland track is actually quite, it's tricky too, because it's, that's typically dry, right? So, so those storm events are actually kind of rare, right? Sometimes they can pick up moisture a little bit further down the coast, but that often warms them up a right. little bit, right? So then they're not quite as cold. So they're, they tend to not be super wet because the colder they are, the lower the amount of precipitable water that they can hold. So, so they tend to not be super wet events. They can be, um, they can do, you know, decent amounts of upper level, higher elevation snows, but they can drag them down to, to lower elevations as well. So right? yeah, the wet and colds are not all that typical. No, right. For those they, reasons that you just said. And yeah, it seems yeah. like the wet part of this, like it's pretty critical what the conditions are like in the Gulf of Alaska. Yeah, and you can imagine the jet's got to have a, a huge kink in it too, right? It's gotta it's gotta have um some kind of huge wave ridge in the um in the eastern Pacific, and then it's gotta have a, a, a really strong digging trough across the west with that low, right? Is the trajectory of that jet does that matter? Thinking about like the threading the like sort of the right position so that you know, the topography doesn't sap all of the atmosphere of the moisture as it, as it makes its way into sort of, you know, down sort of from the Northwest of us in, into our region. Yeah. I, I would think I'm trying to think in my head here. It's, it's got to, it had to have had, it probably can't have that long of an inland track because it would have dumped all its moisture. Right. Um, so it, it might, yeah, it's probably some threading the needle over where it's some Gulf of Alaska down western coast of Canada, maybe even the Pacific Northwest. You could do that. The the trick is is that the, again the the more moisture a storm has, it's, it's typically a little bit warmer too, right? They they scale with each other. So um, it, yeah, it's it's a really interesting pattern. And and sometimes it can be too where there's maybe a little bit of leftover moisture from some previous event, and a cold air mass is interacting with that and is able to do that. Those are even, I think, weaker as far as producing widespread snowfall. But those are the ones that give us the, you know, where it's, we get the picturesque snowing on a, a cacti kind of situation. And you got to think about too, it's harder and harder to do that in a warming climate, right? It takes an even more specific, yeah. you know, jet stream pattern to be able to steer cold air of that quality and magnitude this far south to be able to do it. It probably was easier. I mean, we've got really great widespread snow events in the records of the 60s here in Arizona that probably had a different synoptic pattern that maybe was a little bit more relaxed and easy to make those snow events. Interesting. Okay, so dry cold. So the dry cold, I think, in my mind, looks a lot similar, but is even more inland Right. And it's dragging a low that's almost dropping straight south out of interior Canada and moving straight south through the through the Great Basin and then in dropping and bottoming out into Arizona. So like, remember our classic crazy freezing event of um, is it 2011 or 2012? 
when we we dropped down into the the teens here and and I think uh, so is that the one that there was actually a disaster declaration declared I think that's yeah I think that's right you know and it yeah it was region. yeah and it, it killed palm trees and it was crazy and it all sorts of sorts of things we talked about that a lot back on I remember this back in the podcast too the synoptic pattern had the isobars straight north and south so it was literally just like a a funnel of cold air from the straight from the Arctic down into the Southwest. So how does that differ then from actually the current conditions? Like today? Yeah. Or this, and what's, what's forecasted for the next couple of days. Cause it's, it's like going to be pretty frigid across, across the West. Yeah. Um, you mean to tell me you haven't looked at the, the weather maps? I did actually, I did about an hour ago, but I looked at so many of them. I couldn't remember. <laughs> I'm drawing, um, you know, a picture of what, what, the those uh geopotential height maps look like and it was sort of like almost like a vertical configuration from the you know the border region down down in our area yeah it's it's similar but what's more typical is that you get the cold polar air masses typically move from interior canada and they slide into the northern rockies and the cold air usually pours in on the east side of the Rockies, right? And then it, it literally just pours south. So all that cold air gets, it literally gets dammed up against the Rockies and then can spill all the way south through Texas and then, you know, into the, the Gulf of California. And sometimes Wait, so it, goes, it goes the other way. Yeah, yeah. Because the, the westerlies are trying to steer all of these air, mass, air masses from west to east, right? And right. if the jet stream is has a little, if it's progressive in a little, a little bit, meaning that it's, its wave pattern is not too kinked, that those waves are still gonna move from east to west. But like that event we talked about in 2011, I mean, there was a huge wave pattern in the jet. And as you get those really high amplitude meridional wave patterns, they move slower and sometimes they can re reinforce themselves. So they'll kind of crank down and slow all those air masses down. And then you can steer polar air masses from north to south and maybe even slightly to southwest, right? But those air masses are really in the mid the mid latitudes and then the fall and the winter. They're forming in Canada and they're moving out over the northern Great Plains and into the Midwest and then off to the east, which leaves us typically in that warm air mass in the southwest, right? So to shove the warm air mass out of the southwest, you got to have stuff come straight out of the north and maybe even um, kink back towards the southwest. Just doesn't happen every year, right? The Arctic Oscillation, when the Arctic Oscillation is weak or negative in the winter, you get a sloppy polar jet and then you can have all sorts of dollops of cold air come across, down across the west, the, the central U.S. and the eastern U.S. And um, under a strong uh, positive Arctic oscillation, it gets all bottled up. And then we're kind of in a mild air mass. Wet and warm. Okay. So wet and warm, that's the, what I think about is immediately the classic El Nino winter. Uh, so that would be a strong subtropical jet, which is different than the mid-latitude jet we were talking about right now. And that is going to come in across the Pacific. You know, we would, we would, Sometimes we would call it a pineapple express, you know, depending on where its origin is. And that would then lead to very high levels of precipitable water or moisture. And if there was cold air to the north, that would even enhance the dynamics a little bit. But those those kinds of storms are moisture rich, but don't often have a lot of cold air with them. And they can produce heavy rain across the southwest but have high snow levels and again those are more common during el nino years and those are the ones that you can really get these catastrophic flooding events right if you've you're going to have a snowpack in at, at least in colorado and utah and probably in to some degree in in northern arizona new mexico but a bigger snowpack obviously in, in colorado and utah and then if you get these warm and wet storms that drop copious precipitation, but also like are, 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 are pretty warm, it's going to melt that snowpack. Yeah. I mean, rain on snow events are, are they're really problematic for the Southwest. Cause I think they're, I think they would be a little bit more common down here because we can, 
we could build a snowpack and then we're far enough south that you could get that kind of warm wet storm that would um, produce the the melting with the flood and the flooding subsubsequently so the the el ninos the warm and the wet and warm are more common in el ninos would the dry and cold be more common in the la ninas they i think they actually slightly are and you see a a slight tilt in the odds towards cold extreme again this is not perfect because largely la nina in the southwest leads to overall above average temperatures but there there are in, in if you look at the temperature distribution there is a slight little lean that you can get these cold outbreaks as well during la nina winters right so you get more of an extreme and you know in el ninos tend to be on average cooler just because there's so much more precipitation but it's a little counterintuitive because but they're they're often those storms are warmer so on average el nino winters are cooler because it's raining more but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's those are colder storms and vice versa for la nina events okay mike so let's now talk a little bit about the different hazards uh in the in the winter period so main hazards what comes to mind was that a question to me that was a question Man. It also was clearly a statement that ended in a period. <laughs> it did end in a period. Okay, so what are the main hazards in the Southwest during the winter? Yes. But you already know the answer, so you're just testing. We can have flooding events in the Southwest. They tend to be more widespread, and we can have river flooding associated with uh, heavy rainfall with storms by themselves, but also rain on snow events. So we have that interesting extreme. We also have the other extreme, which would be um, persistent drought through the winter as well. I was actually thinking you were just going to talk about drought. I didn't realize, uh, yeah, you're on it. Cause, uh, we don't, we tend not to think about, I, I feel like in, in the Southwest, I feel like what dominates and maybe it's like, you know, because we've had two, uh, La Nina's in a row and drought is such a collective trauma that I, I feel like you know, the, the drought signal is, is, is so present here, but you're right. Like, you know, there's a, uh, there's flooding that happens quite a bit and those probably are, can be more likely associated with atmospheric rivers, which tend to be a winter phenomenon. I pulled some data from the, the national oceanic and atmospheric administration storm event database. Is that right? Is it known as the local storm report? database? Yeah. Yep. So we actually did this. I shouldn't. I shouldn't portray it as if I just pulled the data. We actually did this for a project working with the Federal Emergency Management Agency a while ago, and so we did climatologies. But I, I just resurrected those those maps that we created, and, and we looked at flood impacts and flash flooding, um, and uh, yeah, there's like a real um, there's like a real presence, particularly of flash flooding um, of uh, uh, these these flash floods in in December and in January, particularly for flash floods, particularly in Southern California, but but also in Central Arizona, February as well. Um, the flash floods are present during during the winter. Floods, larger floods, uh, are also quite present January and February. More so, I would say, it shifts a little bit more to Southern California, January, February, March for Southern California, and then. In January, there's a presence of flood impacts in in Arizona as well, um, and obviously, you know those are all flooding and flash flooding impacts. The predominant signal from those are during the monsoon season, but the point is is that they also occur in uh, in the winter season. So yeah, so so drought, floods, freezes. We we tend to talk about this less that they're not as common. What are we paying attention to this year? So it's a La Nina winter, the third one in a row. So drought will be another. The persistent drought or the expansion of short-term drought conditions will, will probably be back on the radar again. We, we've done so well with the summer rainfall. Even quite honestly, as we talked about, the summer rainfall this summer was so much better for short-term drought uh, improvements than it was even the previous summer because of how frequent and widespread it was. I think we really have beat back short-term drought conditions pretty well, but that will probably expand again as we struggle with some winter precip with the La Nina coming up. So I'd expect that, you know, these La Nina events, 
We've seen this in past years too. Widespread freeze events are still going to be a risk. I mean, there, there, are, it, there are places that it freezes regularly across Arizona, higher elevations, but having those reach into low deserts is always uh, a risk, especially during dry winters as well. We're in the midst of the third La Nina event, back-to-back-to-back, uh, to back to back, triple header, triple dip. It doesn't happen very often, right? It does like not, no, no. You know, I think it's not unprecedented. I think this is the the third such back-to-back-to-back to back to back, uh, La Nina's uh, uh, in the observational record. So probably 1950 or so. So, yeah. um, you know, that's not unprecedented, but it doesn't happen very often. But I look back at the drought signal starting two years ago. So, you know, at this time, 2020, much of the Southwest, actually much of much of the West, uh, let's say Colorado, uh, Nevada, Utah, uh, Arizona, and New Mexico were under extreme drought. And we basically had a pretty dry winter, a very dry winter, actually. Um, and so fast forward to March of the next or May of the next year. So five months later at the end of that, that winter. And it's like drought has had expanded at least according to the, the um, drought monitor, U S drought monitor, pretty much to be exceptional drought, which is their, 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 their highest category. Right. And the rainfall across 90, 95% of those five States were, were, were below normal with, you know, the sort of the, the, the Arizona, New Mexico, you know, much below normal. So, that's what you would expect. It was also probably warmer. And then what really saved us then was the monsoon. So the 2021 monsoon, two years ago, like the, the generational monsoon, as we were calling it, we started that, that season, um, the, the winter season with moderate to severe drought. And again, we had another very similarly dry winter across the West. You know, and drought expanded, but didn't reach the 2021 levels, the year before levels, right? So, so it expanded to a severe drought, maybe extreme in a few few cases. Uh, I should say, New Mexico was 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 worse off. I remember talking about this was worse off in terms of drought than than Arizona was, but it wasn't to the degree that it was a year before. And then what saved our butt was this year's monsoon which exactly, was yeah. generational again which yeah, seemed, yeah. we shouldn't say that twice in a row but it was and so now the picture at least according to the US drought monitor right is is one where we're in, we're in a better situation than we were the previous two years there's some drought abnormally dry conditions which I, technically i don't think are like pe- people call those like like drought but abnormally dry conditions around uh, for, for most of Arizona and, and, uh, and New Mexico with some, some moderate and severe drought in, 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 in parts around, around the edges. And we'll see how it goes. The expectation of course, is that it'll be another dry winter. Right. And again, every single, so after the end of both those, the, the previous two winters, we were really talking about how much, pressure was placed on the monsoon. I guess I would say this, Mike, given where we are now, like even if we have a similarly dry winter as we've had in the last two years, we won't be in as bad of a situation as we were at the end of the winters of the last two years. Yeah, I think- Given by where we're starting. I talked to some land managers and some ranchers who work in Southeast Arizona um, just a couple of weeks ago, and they were commenting on how the summer rain this year was some of the best that they have seen in decades. And they've seen such an improvement of the range condition that they were, they were pretty astonished. Right. And that was even after last summer was, was quite good as well. Right. So that's, that's pretty remarkable. I mean, in, in, in most respects, based just on that particular metric, you could say there's really no short-term drought, but drought is about time scales and sectors and, and specifics. So, we can have all of that going on where we have these really great short-term seasons that do good work for when the, the precip was needed, but at the same time struggle at longer timescales, right? So the reservoirs are still a mess. We still have very low reservoir levels, not only on the, the big reservoirs, but even some of the ones across the region are not, not in great shape because of the lack of winter precipitation. So you can, it's, 
hard, right? The missing winters leads to its own set of impacts that can't be made up by having good summers. So you can have both pretty bad drought conditions, even while it's raining a lot, it's just not raining at the right time of year, producing the right kind of water for the system. So you're in conversations about drought monitoring, both at sort of the national level, I think you tune into like how, how these U.S. drought monitor maps actually get made. I mean, at least you're 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 tuning into those conversations, but you're also tuning into the conversations that are hap- happening around the state just by the nature of your your job. And I, I'm just wondering, like maybe like thinking back on the last two years, um, as drought, uh, particularly two years ago, as drought was a pretty bad situation, you know, going into the winter. Like, how, how do those conversations evolve? Like, you know, do they? Do they increasingly get more frequent in terms of just the level of concern and the 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 number of people that are chiming in? Like, or is it just sort of like a slow burn? Like, like drought itself is sort of a slow burn. Give us a little insight from like behind the scenes, like the people that like are are paying attention for their jobs. Like, how does this conversation go? So. This the Arizona State uh, Governor's Drought Task Force and the Monetary Technical Committee actually make contributions to the U.S. Drought Monitor, which is updated every week, right? So there's an ongoing weekly conversation, no matter what, right? So no matter if there's drought conditions or not, there's this ongoing coordination and discussions about current conditions, right? So there's that, but but who's paying attention to what? when varies, right? So if you're land management, land manager or rancher, there's seasonality of rainfall, that's really critical. And if you miss that, you have impacts that can't be made up by a subsequent different season of rainfall. If you're thinking about fire, that has a seasonality too. So if there's long-term versus short-term drought, that's going to lead to drought conditions and different fuels. And you're going to pay attention to that map largely certain times of the year and use it for planning. And then if it's water, it's like this slow burn long-term problem because of the longer term drought conditions and warming temperatures are just sort of shifting the whole water resources picture in the region. And that's why it's really challenging. I was I was looking at the drought monitor uh, time series, the area of stent. So the drought monitor started in 2000 and it's been going ever since. In 2019, it's hard to even remember <laughs> pre-COVID times, but that in that whole 20 some year period of the drought monitor, the extent of drought across the US on the drought monitor map was at a at its all time low in April of 2019. And if if you can kind of remember in um even in the Southwest in the this the summer of 2019 was not a particularly wet monsoon. That was one of the ones we complained about. We had no idea that 2020 was coming. But that fall was actually really, really wet across the Southwest. And so, you know, kind of beat stuff back. But from 2020 on, it's just the extent of drought has exploded across the continental U.S. And we're talking about drought just about everywhere. And we're almost now at the highest extent of drought across the continental U.S. that we've seen in the whole drought monitor history. So we've seen both extremes just in the last three years. And to kind of bring it back to the Southwest, it kind of depends, right? It, de- it depends on cool versus warm season precip, who we're talking to and, and what kind of impacts you'd expect or you're worried about in the sector you're working. I was taking a look at that time series too, actually. And I I was just scrolling through the different dates and scrolling through the different maps. And, you know, it's obviously a huge country. I was looking at the national level. And so like, aside from that one period that you were mentioning, like, uh, and there was still drought present. It was just in like yeah, it wasn't small. zero. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't it was zero, but it, but yeah. but there's there's usually some extreme drought or severe drought somewhere, and you know it's usually in one of two places. It's usually in the arid west, which is an obvious thing to say, yeah, right. Or it's in like Texas. You know, it's like there's a few places like the Pacific Northwest, nor, you know, the Midwest. Like they they don't nearly get it as much as we do in 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 the in the more arid parts of the west and and texas which is kind of a an obvious thing to say but i think 
it's not like it's not raining there, you know, and it, it and it's not like it's not raining or it's not like it's not below average rain in, in, in those places, right? It's just it when you have 12 inches of rain in a year and you're at 75% of average, that those three inches are pretty consequential. And when you have, let's say, 30 inches of rain and you have and you and you have a three inch deficit there, not the same percentage, obviously. But it's less consequential, right? So we're just like on in that area where it's it's like a few misses here and there is pretty is pretty telling. It's pretty impactful uh, in terms of in terms of drought. It's I mean we're just going to have drought. The nature of our climate, absolutely. And it's you know it's easier to fall into it and it's harder to solve them because precip is low. You know it's kind of an obvious thing to say out here too. We, we also have this real challenge, I think, out here in the West, too, of, of like short versus long-term drought. And, you know, some of the drought monitor maps are trying to do, well, the drought monitor map tries to do both, right? And so long-term drought can happen over decades. We have decadal variability, uh, teleconnections, especially in the Southwest. So you can get into a, like what we're in right now, where do you, do you show that long-term drought, that long-term deficit on the drought monitor map? It's going to be on there for for 20 years. It could be on there for decades. And so I know that that's always been a struggle too of short versus long-term drought here. Fantastic. Well, let's, let's move on. Yep. Let's, uh, let's end this with a little bit of um, our, uh, our ideas or our knowledge about the, the upcoming winter season and what that may bring, what the models are saying. Um, so let me, you know, we already talked a little bit about uh, this being the third La Nina in a row. And so from that, given that it's the leading predictor of seasonal climate, still not like a slam dunk, it's pretty clear if you look at um, the models, it's pretty clear that they're picking up on that dry La Nina. They're picking up on the classic sort of La Nina pattern of wet Pacific Northwest and dry sort of Southern tier of the, of, of the U S uh, in fact, I think only one of the, the models that I'm looking at right now, their ensemble has just a, a, a wet signal. Whereas, you know, the seven other ones, so I'm looking at, you know, the CFS version two, I'm looking at the Canadian model, um, looking at GFDL's model and NCAR's model, NASA's model. Um, they're all, Aside from the NASA model, they're all painting a, a drier than average winter in the Southwest. So I don't know if you have anything you want to you want to talk about there, Mike. The La Nina strength and persistence is somewhat similar to last winter. You know, it wasn't we're not talking about like 2002 level dry conditions, which we've seen in the past, which wasn't even technically a La Nina, <laughs> but um but some of those really dry winters, um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to be optimistic, right? If we could squeak out a couple of good cold snow events, well timed. Maybe we could build a little bit of snowpack that will help with the short term water situation, and um, you know helps cut the cut the time on the spring fire season. You know that's that's about as good as I'm hoping for right now. I don't, I don't think these models are, are wrong. They're the anomalies or the, the sort of shift in the strength of the forecast is it's a little bit weak for the Southwest. And it always leans into Southern Arizona and New Mexico as having a higher probability of below average precip. And it's exactly what we talked about earlier is that those aren't particularly wet spots during the winter anyway. So it's just a little easier for them to miss out on storms. I think all eyes will be on the Colorado River upper watershed this winter just to see what we're going to be able to do as far as precipitation. And Zach, I'm looking at a couple of those maps too. The ensemble from the European has the upper Colorado right at the pivot point between dry to the south and wet to the north. So where will that dividing line be? It's going to be a real question. Right. So you, so that's interesting too, because you brought up uh, snowpack. So, um, and obviously like the sooner that you can put snowpack down the the better and just in terms of like more more is better and like 
if, if, if you have a dry beginning, it's just harder to catch up. Yep. Right. And I mean, right now it's like in the, in the very beginning, but there is, there is snowpack down. It's highly variable across the West in terms of the proximity of stations. Some are above, some are below. So there's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of variability, but like on, in aggregate, um, they're trending at least on the, on the Western side of the Rockies, they're trending um, above, above average, which I think is a good, uh, a good start uh, at least. So if, if I looked at the Colorado River headwaters, slightly above average uh, in aggregate, uh, the Rio Grande headwaters are uh, above average, 115% of average right now. Let's see, the Gunnison is 130%. It's it's not a bad picture early on, but it's it's obviously very very early. But the other thing that I think is interesting is I looked up the stream flow forecasts, which basically you know they account for what they think is going to happen, um, and also what's what's already fit, uh, fell in terms of uh, in terms of snow water equivalent. And so obviously, as you go further in the in the winter and 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 more of the more of the season has passed and we know what happened in the past. Obviously th those forecasts become more accurate. So right now it's, it's fairly uncertain forecast, but for the most part, Colorado and Utah, there's many that are much below average. So the, the inflow into Lake Powell is projected the April to July forecast is projected to be about 70% of average. So even though they're on the hinge line, they're, these forecasts, whatever's in them is sort of hedging toward a little bit of a dry, a dry signal. Now I should say that like, you know, many of the other ones um, are, you know, 70, 80% of average Rio Grande at that Otoe bridge is 65% of average. Uh, so that's usually a telling position on the Rio Grande. For the most part, they're, they're either below or much below average for streamflow forecasts. So. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty early to issue a streamflow forecast. The best streamflow forecasts are based on snowpack that exists rather than snowpack that doesn't exist. That's right. So we'll just keep an eye on that. The La Nina winter te teleconnection is typically wet over the Northern Rockies and the Pacific Northwest and dry across the South, but the upper Colorado River Basin is right in the middle. It hasn't broke favorably for the basin the last couple of years, but wouldn't it be great if they got a little bit of a little bit of snow this year. All right. So are you, you, are you bullish or bearish? You must be. I, I don't know. I'm coming off that the afterglow of the monsoon in the wet October and, you know, just, I don't know, got a little bit of positivity here thinking, why not? Let's give it a shot. See if we can, we can make some preset this winter. Of course that belies what you were saying offline, Mike. It totally does. Yeah, it totally does. I'm, and I, I only mean, I only mean to say, and we have, we didn't talk about this. We don't have to, but you're like, I don't know if it's a, if there's a transition from La Nina into Enso neutral and La Nina, which is not, which, which some of the models are picking up on that might uh, have implications for our monsoon, but we don't have to talk about that. We'll, no, but I, I will we'll keep an eye out on that. I'm a little nervous already for the next monsoon. I mean, it's crazy for us to talk about it in November, but I'll say this just by, by virtue of, you know, the past couple, couple of years that if we do have a dry winter, and again, pressure is put on the monsoon season to deliver. I mean, it's one of these years just by chance. It's going to break. It's yeah, going to break. So, you know, we can't. We can't keep. We can't keep this kind of um, uh, luck. Up. Can you imagine though if we had had these three La Ninas back to back to back with like pretty dry monsoon seasons? It feels pretty lucky that we had the, the monsoon seasons that we had. You don't have to look too far away from the Southwest to know what that looks like. That's where, that's where some of the, the deepest, darkest threads in the drop monitor map are who, you know, they don't have, they don't have strong monsoon signals, so they don't get a lot in the summer and they didn't get a lot in the winter. That's, that's what we would have looked like too. We'd have been. Well, that's the analog. Yeah. Those places that don't get summer rain and, and, and just picked up on the, on the, on the winter rain that, and snow that we got. So. Yep. Yep. Don't have to go too far away to know that's pretty miserable. So gosh, we've been lucky here. And again, like thinking back the last six weeks, getting those, that clouds and rain in October took the pace off the temperature, kept us below average, average to below average. And then 
fall came in. It's just been really quite pleasant here in the Southwest. We've been really lucky. Well, thanks, Mike. We'll come back uh, sometime before the holidays, hopefully in December. We might get canceled though, without having been as our producer uh, anymore. I know. I just think that we'll, we'll just keep trying to, you know, keep this hacky thing going here. <laughs> yeah, we got to come up with a plan. <laughs> we do. <laughs> we do. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. As always, have a good rest of your month. Yep. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. All right. Let me uh, let me stop this so it can start. How do I stop recording? Let me let me start this segment over again. Ben, sorry. This is why we need Ben. <laughs> I think you just posted it as is. This and is this evident. is why we, <laughs> this is why we do segments. <laughs>